I'm so encouraged when we... I agree with Brian, that last song that we sang this morning, fantastic. Uh, it's best when I can hear all of you singing uh, that song and did this morning and so thankful for that. Thankful also this morning uh, for what we began with uh, in, in what Brian said about the simplicity of God as we move, into the, uh, move through the attributes of God and study them and consider them uh, having in our minds the reality that, well, we have to divide out the attributes of God Otherwise, we would have no benediction. Uh, we would have to stay here forever contemplating who the Lord is. Uh, but we are weak and finite creatures, and so we have to, uh, as we think about who God is, come into these categories of thinking. And yet, when we turn back to the living God, there are no categories. Uh, he is simply uh, triune God. And so I'm thankful for that reminder as we begin to move in uh, again, to another attribute this morning. Well, I, I just come this morning with a question, uh, wondering if you've ever in your life at any point felt uh, as though God was distant, as though God was silent, as though maybe in suffering and um, difficulty, ridicule, whatever the circumstance, poor health maybe, that God had somehow forgotten you. You ever experienced that? Well, I think certainly the psalmist did. As we remember his words, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Life can leave us feeling as though God is removed from our experience. And this certainly would have had to have been the truth for the Christians to whom John has written his first letter. Uh, we know, John says, that an entire group of people had lit, left the midst of the congregation. They went out from us because they were not of us, John says. So these people are individuals who had praised and worshipped together and all of a sudden, friends, people that they had done life with were no longer in the assembly and had proven themselves not to be believers at all. That's a difficult providence and circumstance. They had seen uh, their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ sin, sin in egregious ways. We see in the closing chapter of John, John deal with that idea and, and call the church to pray for those sinning sins that are not leading to death knowing that it's only God that brings us back to repentance. And that, watching others struggle in sin and sin in our own lives, is a difficult providence and we can feel the quietness of God. They had faced brutal heresy, the Gnosticism of their day. They had even had their faith shaken, apparently, at, at some level, because John is writing here not in a vacuum. He's writing, as he tells them, that you may know that you belong to Christ. He's wanting to undergird the difficult circumstances of their day. So John has spoken in a myriad of ways, but instead of telling them, listen, I know you have these feelings that God is far off, and leading in, leaning into those feelings primarily, and I believe if if someone were to address the same problems that John is facing in the first century today from a modern religious theological standpoint, what we would probably get is more of a letter about feelings than about theological substance. But the apostle is very wise in what he does. He doesn't aim at feelings first, does he? Now feelings matter, but he warns them first not about their feelings, but about the God that they worship. And he writes prominently, leaving in their minds this final verse, verse 21, warning them that even though they face difficult providence, and even though they will go through times of difficulty, the thing they need to keep singularly focused in their mind is that they don't swerve into idolatry. Our feelings, John knows, can lead us into idolatry. 
We can have idolatrous feelings about who Christ is and what He's done. We can come in, and I've been in many church services where there is praise sung to Jesus, but then when Jesus is proclaimed, He is largely different than what you find in the text. And they're not really praising and proclaiming Christ at all, but rather an idol. And beloved, we dare not face our adversary Satan in our generation without worshiping the one true living God. So with that in mind, if you would do honor the reading of God's Word and stand this morning as we read again the encouragement that John leaves us with. Beginning in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that have been asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's Word to us, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence this morning acknowledging the reality of our idolatrous hearts and knowing that we would worship in vain. And we would worship falsehoods. And we would worship and contort uh, misunderstandings of who Christ is if it were not for Your work in our lives. So would You come emblazon on our hearts today the reality that You are the One providentially working all things for Your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Today I want us to be careful as the little children, the beloved ones that John talks about, to consider a very important attribute, aspect of who God is. Um, and this particular attribute ties into so many other attributes. It's really a a great attribute to consider the simplicity of God as well because in considering what we're going to today, every other attribute is so clearly interwoven if we understand this attribute, this aspect of God rightly. And that is the providence of God. We get this word providence from the Latin, uh, and I won't give you the word, but the root of the Latin means to see beforehand. And some have come to that Latin word and falsely, and this is what we do when we misunderstand the attributes of God, we, we understand them from a human aspect. God is not like you and I, beloved. And so when we talk about to see beforehand in the person and the work of the triune God, it's not that He sees everything out there and responds to it the way that we would in some sense, uh, that we see difficulty coming and so we take proper precautions. Uh, you know, when there's a respiratory illness that is on the, the minds of, of the entire nation the way it was two years ago during the pandemic, and we take precautions, you know, the, the respiratory illness, so we go buy toilet paper. Here's the depravity of man. Yeah. Um, when we think about God seeing beforehand, think more along these lines that He sees to it. 
That he is proactive and he sees all things that are arranged. And they are arranged that way because he is the one who primarily causes all things. It's not that he sees them and reacts. It's that all things that are, are as they are because he has seen to it that they are that way. God's providence means that He executes all that comes to pass by the power of His own will. Now I want to take just a brief second to share my heart with you about something. And I'm not making a motion. I'm not suggesting we have to do anything rash. But if you know me, if you're close to me, you know that, um, you know that I'm not very fond about the name of our church. And here's the reason why. Can anybody tell me what life point means? I'll get a myriad of different answers. And if I'm honest, life point is a name that sounds more like something Oprah Winfrey would come up with to put on something that she's going to do than the church of the living God. I don't know where it fits, but providence is a great uh, word that holds so much meaning and I think would be uh, excellent as a moniker of our gathering. But that's a side note. I just want you to know that this is a word that is packed with so much meaning. And as I come and stand before you this morning, I, I will not exhaust the meaning of providence. If you leave today going, I don't quite fit all of what he said into my brain, and there seems like there's something missing, yes. And we could spend all afternoon and it would still be that way. And I know that this is a Baptist church with a capital B and so we want to get to lunch so I won't be able to get through everything. But friends, the providence of God is not something trite. It's not something that we should think lightly of. There's a reason why so many of the old catechisms of the faith are replete with this word the saints of old knew this word well and it wasn't just it wasn't just something that they put at the forefront of movements or cities we see that in new england uh, it was something that they put at the forefront of their lives it was woven into the fabric of their thinking the, the westminster shorter catechism question number eight uh, says as the answer, God execute, executes His decrees in the works of creation and providence. That is, that God executes all that will come to pass in two veins. First, in creating all that is, being the maker of the world and the sustainer. But I believe in so much of Christianity today in America, we have fallen in our understanding of providence. That not only did He create the world, but by the power of His will, He upholds everything to this very moment. John Calvin rightly said that the, the first act of the execution of God's decree uh, considered, uh, consisted of His work of creation, making the universe out of nothing as a theater for His glory. That is, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The same way we go into the theater and we watch a show, uh, so we look at the heavens and we see that God is displaying His absolute glory. But He goes on to acknowledge the doctrine of creation lays an essential foundation for providence because it establishes God's absolute authority and power over all things. God's execution of His decrees is, is ultimately treated under providence, uh, which declares that God is working everything according to His purpose and His plan for two ends. For His glory and for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. God's providence says that not only did He create the world for a particular end, but He is working in that world for a particular end, and that is His own glory and the good of the saints that He will redeem by His own power. William Pimble wrote, Providence is an external and temporary action of God, whereby He preserves, governs, and disposes of all singular things which are and are done 
both the creatures and the faculties and actions of the creatures and directs them both to the immediate ends and to the last end of all after a set and determined manner according to the most free decree and counsel of his own will that himself in all things might be glorified. Now, if you got lost in that definition, it simply means this, that God rules over everything, period. And all of the theologians who come to attack this doctrine and to put qualifications, yeah, but God can't violate our free will, but God can't do this, but God can't do that. What Pimble is saying and what the Word of God says is, sit down, boys. God is God. He is on the throne. And He is reigning over His creation by His providence. One of the most, I think, beautiful summaries of the doctrine of providence comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, In question 27, Lord's Day 10, The providence of God is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He upholds and governs heavens, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. I had a brother in Christ here that worked with me in my early days of ministry in this church. And one day knew that I was a big sovereignty of God guy. If you fault me, that is an attribute of God that I, I think has been lost in our day. And he said, Jay, do you really believe that God is sovereign over everything? And I said, dear brother, look outside. You see those blades of grass? Every one of them belong to him. Every." ounce of creation, every iota, our material being, our immaterial being, belongs to Him and He reigns over it providentially. And so it is, at the foundation of providence stands the the doctrine of God's sovereignty. God exercises His power in His universe to a universal extent. The psalmist understood this, Psalm 95, in His hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands have formed the dry land. Hezekiah prayed, Thou art God, even Thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, Thou hast made heaven and earth. The the Bible refers to God all throughout as God Almighty, and literally translated, Almighty would would translate out um, all ruler, that He rules over all things. There are some people who, when we bring out older confessions of the faith, um, like the Apostles' Creed, some people sneer, those are words that man came up with. They are. It just so happens that the men that came up with those words were neck deep in the Word of God. They weren't worried about the bistro table and the skinny jeans. They wanted to declare the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And it is why we find in the Apostles' Creed the exhortation, the the, the belief asserted that we believe, we confess, God is Father Almighty. We believe that He is the all-ruler of heaven and earth, and that this is universal. There's no qualification. You can't find in the Bible a qualifier to the universal providence, rule, sovereignty of God. Ultimately, what we find in the providence of God is that this is an attribute that tests our practical relationship. It is a litmus test to question how are we relating to God? Because this is what the the providence of God asks. What does your heart practically believe of God? Is your heart singularly focused on the Lord Understanding that He sovereignly rules over all things, or is your heart divided, believing that I, I worship God in these areas of my life, but ultimately these other areas belong to the earth and are outside of His providential rule and reign. The question that providence pushes upon us is, does God rule over everything or not? 
Now, man's bent, Irenaeus says, is to idolatrously generate a practical polytheism under which our world is fragmented, and we give bits of it to God, but we keep other components and domains for ourselves and rule over those. And in respect of this kind of thinking, men struggle to think of God in terms of a territorial boundary. Well, God is God here, but not over there. There are signs in this town that claim particular yards to belong to the Lord. It's cute. Really obnoxious if you know your Bible. The worst rebel of God, the the, the dissenter that hates God, the greatest atheist in the world, his yard still belongs to God. And practically he knows it. He's set in his heart, and by removal of a yard sign maybe, that there is no God, but we all know that the grass in his yard would wither and die if it were not for Almighty God. You see, God doesn't need us to declare. There's entire veins of of theology that move in this direction. God doesn't need us to declare that anything belongs to Him. He made it, and He's ruling over it, and it does belong to Him. There will never be an election where we get to vote, do we want God to theocratically rule over us? He is to this very moment. The question is, in His providence, are we acknowledging that rule or are we rebelling against it? And maybe not in your life, but in mine, there are far too many areas that I find, oh, Jay, you are not living under the providence of God here. I mean, take as an example the Syrians, uh, when they explain their defeat at the hands of Israel, they say this in 1 Kings chapter 20. Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they are stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain. And surely we shall be stronger than they. The Syrians are saying, Israel might tear us up if we go to the mountains because their God is there. But if they meet us out in the plain, if we go out into the parking lot in hillbilly language, we can whip them out there. But the conclusion in verse 28 of 1 Kings chapter 20, is that God is offended by that because He simply responds, I am the Lord. It doesn't matter where you are. It is my providential rule that matters. So the question this morning, Christian, is this. What areas of your life do you think are outside of His providential rule and reign? What is outside of the reach of Almighty God? It's a question we should ponder all the time. Am I submitting this area of my life to the rule and to the reign of of God? In areas where we have anxiety, where we wonder, is our health going to fail? Are our finances going to fail? Are our children going to walk away from the faith? And fill in the blank, is our nation going to crumble under the weight of absolute idiotic political policy? If we fear in those areas... We are ignoring the providence of God. Because when we understand and put all of those things in His providential care, we know that He has promised everything for His glory and for our good. You see, when we think of God acting in history, I think far too often the way we think, well, God acts only in miracles, in particular uh, providence where uh, there is some grand demonstration of special revelation or the power uh, in a unique, particular way. But beloved, the reality is most of Scripture bears out a testimony that God works out His providential rule in the ordinary circumstances of life. And He is ruling and reigning over all of creation in the normal happenings that go unnoticed. The psalmist says in verse 9 and 10 of Psalm 139, If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. By thy right hand you will hold me. God rules over every aspect of our lives. It is all miraculously under His providential care. 
I mean, think about this, this reality and this just as a demonstration of how quickly we forget that our king is ruling and reigning. Do you remember the Exodus? Do you remember what it took for the children of God to be set free by Pharaoh? Do you remember the plagues that God had sent? If you want to talk about miraculous providence, the children of Israel got to witness that. There were locusts and the water was turned to blood and there was thunder of hail and, 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 and fire. I mean, there is a, for a period of time, God is mocking the gods of the Egyptians and He is displaying His power that He rules over every scintilla of the earth, that the gnats belong to Him. Everything. And so the children of God clicked their heels together and they went out into the desert and they worshipped God in spirit and in truth and they never struggled with idolatry. Except that's not the narrative. The narrative is very shortly into their walk after seeing the miraculous providence of God in the normal circumstances of their life, they do what humans do. They turned to their religious leader and they said, give us an idol. Make it like the gods of Egypt that we are used to. Beloved, if you don't think that is still happening in America today, you are deceived of Satan. Because today it is mold Christ into what I want Him to be. Stop proclaiming a Christ who will mold me into what He wants me to be. We fall so easily into an idolatry by removing the doctrine of providence from the forefront of our mind. But beloved, we need to rest knowing that God rules over all. Augustine rightly said that God's wisdom and power pervade all things and sweetly order them. That's a great definition of providence. God, let me say it again, God's wisdom and power pervade all things and sweetly order them. What a joy it is to know that that is so. How do we see the Lord ruling providentially in what I would consider pretty ordinary means? Well, one, the Lord controls the weather. In Psalm 147, we find He sends out His... Command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. I put that in here. You'll have to look up what snow and frost is as West Texans. But God is sovereign over them. Uh, Job would have understood in, in first-hand account that our God is providential. He is sovereign over all of the weather. God governs uh, plants and animals. Jonah learned this experience through being devoured by a whale. It was a stinky lesson, but it stuck. God is the one who rules over the famines of the earth, over crops producing their abundant yield, and over years where there is need. And He's doing all of that for a particular purpose. That the Lord controls the nations of mankind. It, he is the one who determines and raises leaders up. And when someone that we politically disagree with finds themselves in the Oval Office, we don't need to despair. Because God is still in those moments ruling and reigning over all things. He is the one bringing about His particular end. God ultimately made from one human race all the nations of men and determined how long each would endure in their fluctuating time and season. It's the reason why Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we should pray for our leaders and for the nation. Because ultimately, we're not praying to a God who is standing back and going, boy, I hope this works out for the good of my people. We pray to a God who is orchestrating all things that one day we will stand before Him and He will be glorified and we will be satisfied. Amen. You know, there's something that's funny. It used to irritate me in my immaturity, uh, kind of the political rancor that goes on inside the Christian church, but there's an outworking of that that I think is just natural. Of course all of this frustrates us because it's not Christ who is reigning. 
in the particular political office that we're concerned about. He's the only perfect ruler. He's the only one who leads well. And friends, let me just encourage you. Now, we're coming up on another election. Vote. Exercise your vote under the providence of God for His glory. Pray about that. Move in the Be active in those ways. But know ultimately, no matter what happens at the next election cycle, we're going to be frustrated because we live in a fallen world. But there will be a day when the election that is held is not of the leader, but ultimately of God gathering all of His elect, and we will be satisfied. And He will be glorified. So God rules over nations and political spheres. God rules over the events in our human lives. You know why? The insidious act of abortion is a political controversy in our day. It's because we've forgotten the providence of Almighty God. It's because we have started to believe that when a little child comes into this world, it is by natural means. Now, there is a natural order, and that all plays into God's providence. But ultimately, we find in the Word of God that God is the one who opens the womb. Every child that is conceived and that is born into this world is a providential gift of Almighty God. When we argue about that particular topic, we have to just be taken aback and and realize for a moment that those who would propose the solution to any problem would be the slaughtering of innocent children has not just done violence to, to children, but to the attribute of God ruling and reigning over all things. Not only does He allow for the conception like he's standing back, but he forms, the psalmist says, each child in the mother's womb. He is the God who is sovereign, who is providential, not only over our abilities, but also our disabilities. God is ruling over all of those circumstances in our lives, again, for his glory. He rules over every human life in the building up of his church, in the edification of His body. And He does that through natural, normal providence. If we think for a minute about our Bible, a lot of the liberal ideology that has come against the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is they will look at these 66 books that we hold as the words of God and they will say, well, ultimately, you have to, as you read the Bible, if you really are one that looks at the pages and interprets the words, you have to see that every author, their human personality comes out in the writing. The, the Bible isn't just God impressing onto the pages a, a mechanical message, but rather He uses the individual personalities of men in writing the book. And so the liberal comes to the Bible and says, because man was involved, therefore, this can't be the Word of God. Because it's an admixture of the personalities of men and the, and the words of God, so we don't know which is which. The problem is, is that entire scheme misunderstands the providence of Almighty God. Do you know who gave the authors of the Word of God breath? God did. Do you know who afforded them education so they knew how to write? God did. Do you know, pray tell, who carried along the authors as they wrote the very words they wrote? God in His beneficent uh, providence did that very thing. And that is why uh, the the arch-scholar B.B. Warfield said this, God's providence is over all. Whence came even the human factor but from God Himself, preparing by providence for the production of the Bible. God prepared and controlled Moses and David, Peter and Paul as writers of Scripture so that the human element in it too is equally from God. Therefore, we no longer doubt that this book, though human through and through, is the very Word of Almighty God. If you struggle with the doctrine of the sufficiency and inspiration of the Word of God, I promise you, you have a problem with the doctrine of the providence of God. God is not only 
the ruler over all of human life and our abilities, disabilities, and even the proving of his word. God is sovereign over our human hearts. We find in Proverbs chapter 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whatever direction he will. All decisions that we make come from the will and power of Almighty God. All of our foolish decisions are ultimately subject to the control of God. The Lord is in all of them. The Lord also rules over demons. There's entire veins of theology this morning that would relegate the earth under the control of Almighty Man. And we have to overcome the demonic forces around us. Beloved, your Bible does not describe God as so weak. Our God rules and reigns over all of the principalities of darkness. And they are nothing more than instruments in His sovereign hand. Think about the reality of the narrative of Job and Satan coming and he has to ask for permission to afflict Job. And God allows it not for Job's destruction, but for our edification and for his exaltation. The man of, of sin comes to deceive people by the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, but this demonic deception will succeed with men only because God shall send them strong delusion that they would believe a lie and that all might be damned who believe not in the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. The reason why people live in unbelief today is under the providence of Almighty God. And that gets very uncomfortable, but it's very true. The only reason why we sit here today is the opposite, believing, and that is that God in His providential care has opened our darkened eyes that we would behold the glory of God. Think about when, when Paul talks about being afflicted with the thorn of the flesh and he says that Satan has come to buffet him. Ultimately, he doesn't say all of this is in Satan's hands. He says God is doing this for a purpose. Demons, Satan, are under the control, the providence of God. God controls the sins of men. Now that brings the question of God's providence into a very narrow conversation. Um, so is God ultimately the author of sin? And the answer to that is no. James tells us that God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does He tempt man with evil, and yet He is providential over the sin of man. He is ruling and reigning. And not only does He know, not only does He see the sin, but He uses the sin in His redemptive plan for His own glory. And someone will object, and they will say, well, ultimately that means the fall is God's fault. Well, they've neglected in that moment to consider Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. You see, ultimately, our God is a God who rules and reigns over all of our actions. And He does it with absolute care. Again, that idea of the simplicity of God. Don't remove the providence of God from the love of God and the care of God and the wisdom of God and the mercy of God. All of those things factor into His providence. And I believe that Paul understood that when he was saying in Acts chapter 17, the Lord God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor, does he, uh, no, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives the, to all mankind life and breath and everything. That word everything ends the conversation on providence. And He... Um, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. 
For in Him we live and breathe and have our being. The reality of God's providence is that He is caring for us. He is, he is molding us. He is showing us His kindness in every aspect of creation. One author said, Whenever a, donkey, a wild donkey drinks water, a bird perches on a tree, a cattle graze upon grass, or men eat bread, God is present and active as the giver of all things that are good. God is providentially ruling and reigning not for our destruction, but for His glory and for our good. And so we come, again, as we narrow down here, I want us to think about also the concurrence because that nagging question, if God really is providential and ruling sovereignly over all things and He rules even over the sins that are committed on the earth, then does that mean He's morally responsible? And quickly, the doctrine of concurrence deals with that concern. The, 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 the biblical doctrine of providence doesn't collapse the, the causation of everything into God alone and not leave room for the understanding that man is the one that is morally responsible for his sin. Theologians have understood for generations that God is the primary cause of all things, that He is ruling over all. But under God's providence are His creatures as secondary causes of all things. And so His creatures bear the responsibility and weight of the, the sin that they commit. The, 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 the idea of concurrence is that two rivers run parallel to one another and they ultimately, they ultimately carry out the same effect, the same action. They run with but they do not besmirch the holiness of God. Stephen Sharnock said, the holiness of God is not blemished by His concurrence with the creature in the material part of the sinful act. Every action is good by a physical or natural goodness as an act of the mind or hand which have a natural goodness by creation. The reality is God has been in His providential care good to each one of us. In, in, in creating food for us that will sustain us and, and our ability to eat. But, the, the, but beyond that is our secondary response to His providential rule in that area of our life. And the question is, will we turn to gluttony and abuse our bodies? You see, there's a reality of God ruling, but there's also the moral culpability of man. Well, friends... As we began this morning, and I've thrown a lot at you in, under the providence of God this morning, I asked you a question. Have you ever felt alone and as though God were not at work? And the answer for all of us is yes, that He's silent at times. That is in every generation. But I want you to hear the end of what the psalmist says in Psalm 22. And then I want to think through quickly just a few other passages about how our forefathers have responded to the providence of God. Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O oh God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And between this stanza and the next, I believe is the providence of God in the mind of the psalmist as he continues, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. The psalmist says, It feels, God, as though you have forgotten us, yet I will trust in you because I know that you are the Deliverer who providentially rules to bring about your glory and our good. If we think about the narrative of Joseph and having been sold into slavery, you'll remember this as his response when his brothers who had abused him Come before him, and he's now ruling Genesis chapter 50. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant it for evil against me. 
but God meant it for good. There's the doctrine of concurrence. They meant it for evil, but God meant it. God did not use it for good. God meant it. He intended Joseph to be sold into slavery providentially. Why? For the destruction of many? No, for the deliverance of many. When God's hands are at work in concurrence providentially using the actions of man, His intent is never sinful and it is never for the destruction of those that He has called according to His purpose. It's always for their deliverance. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, the reality is Joseph did not live on his feelings first, but on faith, trusting the providence of God. Or if we turn to that, the narrative of David, that narrative that every 12-year-old boy loves to read over and over, and David comes before the Philistine as just budding into his teenage years, and he says this, that then 1 Samuel chapter 17, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give... The the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. I think there might be like a parenthetical, but with, by His providential care. For the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hand. David did not live in his feelings first, beloved. He lived by faith, trusting in the providence of God. Or if we turn to the book of Esther, and Esther is a narrative, it is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God by name. It contains no accounts of miraculous happenings, no prophecies. Its characters are never explicitly said to pray. And yet we find God at work in the pages. He's not written at the forefront, but Esther knew of the providential working of Almighty God. And we find her response to that providence in chapter 4, verse 13 through 16. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come, not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a, a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days or nights or day. I and my young women also will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther was a woman who did not live in her feelings first, but in faith, trusting in the providential hand of Almighty God. And friends, don't we see the glorious implication of that narrative? She was used to save multitudes of people. Yes, Esther acted, but God in His concurrent providence was ruling over all things. We see the providential hand of God in the narrative of, of, of Abraham. When God commands Abraham to bring a sacrifice, and Isaac asks, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham responds, God will provide. That passage is pregnant with providence. The Lord will provide. On the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. Jehovah Jireh is ruling over all. In the Scripture, ultimately this Hebrew word provide means to see. God sees all of our needs. He sees all of the happenings of the earth. And He will providentially provide for those things. And we know how that story ends. God does provide 
a substitutionary sacrifice. But we see most evidently the trusting of the providence of God, not in sinful man, but in the perfect Son of God. As He goes to pray before His suffering on our behalf, as He considers, and I believe at the forefront of Christ's mind, is not just the lashes and the crown of thorns, it is the wrath of Almighty God. Our Savior knew what the providence of God meant for Him on that cross. The question is, is did He cave to His feelings? Or did He walk victoriously? Well, we remember Luke chapter 22. And He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and, he sw- and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Beloved, we rest today knowing that Christ was not led by his feelings. He walked in triumphant surrender to the will of his Father, trusting in his own providence. I hope that we leave this place today rejoicing and knowing no matter the difficult circumstance, no matter how dark it gets politically in our nation, no matter the evil that befalls us, our God is always providentially ruling and reigning. And one day we will behold His glory and we will be satisfied and we will know that it has come not by our works, not by our will, but only by the providence of Almighty God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence today and we acknowledge the might of your hand. We acknowledge the reality that you are God and that there is none like you. Father, we lift before you today those who are absent from us, who are traveling, and we lift before you those today that are suffering uh, with health issues and sick and all of those things. And Lord, we come today with boldness, knowing that you are the God of all providence. You've allowed those things for a reason. Father, you can heal for your purposes. Might you do that and work in the lives of our brothers and sisters today. Father, might we be people who repent of our amnesia of your providential ruling. As we begin to go throughout our day, might we face the challenges by asking ourselves the question, is this something that has escaped your rule? And might you in our hearts convict us and mold our thinking for your glory that we would see your providential hand. Father, we rejoice in you today knowing that you by Your divine power, have given us all things necessary for life and godliness. So let us bless Your name at all times and forget not that You have forgiven our iniquities, You have healed our diseases, You have redeemed our lives from destruction, and You have crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercy. You have satisfied our mouth with good things, and You renew our spirit that we might walk triumphantly knowing that you providentially rule and reign over all things in Christ.